This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains you to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Elijah Cage. And I'm Ariana Cordova. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we focus on environmental justice and the student debt crisis. We are joined by Dr. Magda Avila, one of the members of the Board of Directors at the New Mexico Environmental Law Center, about the importance of the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Air Quality Control Board and recent updates. We are also joined by the Student Borrower Protection Center Outreach and Advocacy Manager, Amy Zulada, who tells us everything about the student debt crisis we are currently facing. We have some vaccine equity reminders we want to make sure you are aware of as you enter the new year. That's right. Stay tuned for all of this helpful information. On November 8, 2023, the Albuquerque City Council approved two pieces of legislation. One of those bills would abolish the current Albuquerque Bernalillo County Air Quality Control Board. We are joined by Dr. Magda Avila, who is part of the Mountain View Coalition and member of the Board of Directors at the Environmental Law Center. Dr. Avila will provide historical context and updates on how the situation has and continues to evolve. Here is Barbara Ramirez speaking with Dr. Magda Avila. This is Barbara Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Dr. Magdalena Avila, member of the Board of Directors at the New Mexico Environmental Law Center. Dr. Avila is a public health researcher and scholar activist. She has worked her entire professional career of over 35 years in partnering with frontline communities in local research, community engagement, and addressing public health challenges using community-based participatory research. Her research and efforts have also focused on creating sustainable community-based cultural interventions. Magda, welcome to Generation Justice. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you. Please tell us more about yourself. I think just to start off, the seed of who I am and even what I became is because of my parents, Macedonia Gonzalez Avila and Ausencio Avila. They are my inspiration. They have been my heroes to this day. I don't have to put any other face in there because they had, they were superstars in my book. And um, the values that they taught us, the ethics, the hard work, and more than anything, the value of getting an education. Mis padres no tenían educación. Uh, they came from San Luis Potosí, Mexico in 1940. Cruzaron el río y se vinieron a lanchita. There was uh, three of my siblings, my older siblings. I'm in a family of seven children and then my two parents, a total of nine. We were in Edinburgh, Texas, and then when I was barely one, 
my father went to go pick us up, participated in the Bracero program, was in Ohio. Finally, he found a place uh, where he was employed and he was able to get a car and we moved to California to the Central Valley. So all of my journey, all of my life has been one of acknowledging where we're coming from, not in denial, but a real hard work ethic, uh, a vision that my parents had. And so my generational wealth came not from materialistic things, but it came from the heart, from the spirit that they passed on to us. It came from the real cultural element, the mi cultura mexicana. So, and I do consider myself proudly la hija de campesinos. And that is the, the very reason I went into the path of public health. You can't be a campesina and not think about health and also the political elements of health. You never see health as just a term. You see it as what you're living out in terms of the impact on your life. Very quickly, I did graduate with all my graduate degrees from UC Berkeley. I do have a doctorate of public health. I have a master's in public health in health education, community health, and I have a master's in social work in gerontology. And I came to Nuevo Mexico because I wanted to buy a home. And I also wanted to teach to Chicanos, Mexicanos, and Native Americans. And I was able to do that. So I feel very lucky. Tengo Milagro Tonantzin Avila Silva. She's 25 years old. She's a medically fragile child. Y mi esposo, Lauro Silva, también otro activista. And so the three of us little advocates in our household. And, you know, you just, it's not a, a, a title you look for it's just what you do period so. Magda muchísimas gracias por esta entrevista el día de hoy para mí es un honor poderte entrevistar it's an honor that I get to conduct this important interview with you thank you and Magda share more with our listeners about the New Mexico Environmental Law Center and your mission the Environmental Law Center has been around for quite a long time I'm going on my third year being on the board of directors. And the Environmental Law Center represent cases throughout the state of Nuevo Mexico. Um, they do not charge for representation. They do fundraising. And matter of fact, the director and the staff, the professional staff, everybody works real hard trying to raise the funds to continue providing, taking on cases, just like the Mountain View case with the regulation H-E-E-I. And in doing that, Um, I think they've reached and touched every part of the state. They work with um, Pueblo nations, tribal nations, um, of course, uh, uh, Novo Mexicano uh, communities, which is villages or the towns and also urban places, but we're rural también at the same time being here in the county. So the intersectionality of the law center The New Mexico Law Center is just that, to reach out to communities, to try to provide representation, like the water protectors, um, other dealing with some of the policies across the state and how they're impacting people. And so each case is very unique, but they want to provide a source, just like uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, other law centers across the country. They're very unique to know Mexico. Thank you so much for that background. You are a resident of the Mountain View community in the South Valley of Albuquerque. What are the historic environmental justice issues in your community? Well, Lauro, my husband and I moved to Mountain View in 1998. 
So we basically have 25 years here, but we've lived in the South Valley um, even before that. I moved to Nuevo Mexico from the Bay Area in 1995 because I took a position at the University of Nuevo Mexico in community health, health education. Mountain View has a long, long history of activism, advocacy, struggles, public health struggles. Um, it's a poor community. It's the 87105 zip code. It is the poor zip code in, in Albuquerque. It also has, um, because it's an 87105, I've basically seen as a dumping ground. You're not going to get um, hassled. You're not going to get organized backlash from any community member because they're too poor. They're working to live, and they don't have time to really you know, be appealing or be doing all these things. Um, Mountain View, it, I think as a zip code area, probably has anywhere from maybe six to 8,000 residents. The primarily is the Mexicano immigrant. And what's unique about Mountain View, even though it's a poor community, the majority of the residents own their homes. They're not rented. If we talk about generational wealth, you know, we have our casitas. And again, it's having um, the fact that you own something and you're not renting it is really important, I think, to the people of Mountain View. One of the poorest areas right here in Mountain View is over in Prosperity. Um, very low, I think it's like 12,000 um, annual yearly income. You can go really low. And at the same time, there's pockets like up in Lagunitas of million dollar ranch homes. I mean, really high. So there's kind of a, a whole uh, patch of different um, economic ladder sites. And you can see it just by driving around. Mountain View was the first elementary school in all of Albuquerque. And they call it Mountain View because you could see the mountains. Precioso, hermoso, se podían ver. And you had, um, your eye could just take in the whole site, beautiful site. And slowly, slowly over time, that beautiful view has been replaced by um, super tanks, industry, um, all of these things. So you see the photo changing and becoming burdened with what I call polluting industry versus natural industry or even green industry. It's right by I-25 to the west of I-25 and basically the Rio Grande River on our west side. And we go as far up as maybe to the north of Rio Bravo, a little bit further, but that basically is the census tract for the 87105 area code. Mountain View initially had the whole history of raw sewage uh, where familias would move here, but there was no what I call structured sewage system. Sometimes it would just be flowing out and so forth. And so of course you have detriments to health, disease, the smell. Also what happened, and this was in the 60s, was what they call the nitrate, blue baby syndrome. Babies were being seriously affected, turning blue because they couldn't get enough air because the water that they were drinking had nitrates. So that was stealing in any oxygen. And it wasn't until, I believe it was the doctor from UNM, who identified the problem, who wrote it up and made a huge challenge and said, you know, what are you doing? These babies are 
you know, are dying. These babies are being, these families, look at where they're living. It was a strong part then to a community advocacy and, and reaching out, but it was the public health story when it broke that brought to action a lot of response on let's clean it up. What do we do? Um, we do have various colleagues who were very involved in the 1960s to 70s in the Mountain View struggle for social justice. Thank you so much, Magda. It's important that we understand at least a little bit of the history of the injustices that have happened in our state, especially in Mountain View. So now that we've talked about the historical piece, I want to ask you to help us understand uh, the two bills related to air quality control that the city councilor introduced. Help us understand those bills. Okay, now given the history of Mountain View, it's important to really understand this kind of like the snowball effect. It was getting bigger and bigger as it was collecting and building the cumulative impacts. That's a key word when we're talking about poor and vulnerable communities like Mountain View. How do we prove that this industry over here that is putting out all this toxic smoke and everything, how can we prove that it actually is impacting our health? And therein lies the challenge. How do communities that do not have the resources but have the spirit and the heart to pursue it in through activism, how do we prove through empirical evidence-based science that it's impacting us. One of the hardest things to prove is the direct effects of chemicals upon us. Because what happens is when you have an industry, there's hundreds of chemicals that might be coming out of the smoke and so forth. The, the bureaucracy will tell you, and even some of the science, you can't say, oh, that's causing this and, and I'm getting sick from it. Well, which chemical? Well, all of it. And they'll say, no, this chemical isn't known for you know, respiratory disease or causing the following. So even though we as a community bring things together, I mean, we're not chemists, we are the residents, but we are also the canaries in the mine. In being the canaries in the mine, we're the ones who hurt, we're the ones who feel the pain, we're the ones who feel the accumulation of years of toxicity and pollution impacting our communities. So the history is essential. You can't address a health issue in a community in a vacuous history. Every community has a history that points to that. And I, by saying this, I want to acknowledge the fact that the issues in this bill regarding the regulation of the um, health environmental equity intervention and looking at the two regulations about how do we regulate industry and the levels of pollution and toxicity that they are emitting didn't just happen. You can't just go to one dot and this is the starting point. Boom, ahí empezó todo. No, tienes que ver la historia donde empezó todo poquito, poquito, the environmental racism element, contextualism. Because by contextualizing and looking back at the poverty index, looking back at the lack of resources, the lack of infrastructure, all that in time produce accumulative impacts. With public health, you can't prove something overnight. It takes years to prove that. 
you know, the, what's the chemical impact? How am I being affected on respiratory problems? The elderly, the youth, um, as even right now, a lot of people who are testifying are saying, I have respiratory problems. I can smell anything that, that happens. It affects my ability to breathe with quality. Um, you have children. Again, Mountain View, the South Valley, we have one of the highest rates of children with respiratory asthmas. The vulnerabilities of these communities son de más, mucho, mucho más. There are studies that the quality of life, the neighbors in the Northeast Heights, you'll live 10 to 20 years more than you do if you live in an area as polluted as us here in Mountain View. So that's really important before in terms of getting to the regulation. So as these conversations began, um, people were, were coming together and again, you have to develop coalitions in order to create and garner the resources that are necessary. And that's when the uh, New Mexico Environmental Law Center, it was like different individuals working and addressing the pollution here. What they did is they decided that they wanted to develop a regulation, a policy-based regulation that would ask industry, and they'd have to have it approved by the Albuquerque Bernardino um, Air Board. I think what you're seeing right, right now in terms of the public hearing follows about three years of actual meetings as a coalition, uh, separately and then as a coalition that came together. When you're working out a policy regulation document, you have to think of, one, the language, two, who is it benefited, three, I mean, you're basically doing chess moves. Who, when industry objects to this, and we know they're going to object, what are the arguments that are going to come up, come up? How do we address those arguments? And the regulation is to regulate industry within a certain, you know, like I think it's a one mile, one and a half mile area. It's not all over Albuquerque. Al principio, nadie le hacía caso to the group, the Mountain View Coalition and along with the New Mexico Environmental Law Center. But this, I mean, it took a real, es como plantar un arbolito. Como va a crecer ese árbol? Como, do we want it, you know, is it going to move to the right? Is it going to move to the left? Como cre va, va a crecer este arbolito? And so as a regulation, we need to um, give all of this input and grow it. So, El reto más grande, one of the biggest challenges, is coming together to put together a regulation. It requires so many different levels of expertise, the community-based expertise of living in those circumstances. It puts together, and there's everyone experiences, has different experiences, different perspectives, a different lens by which they are examining, understanding, experiencing this particular problem, you have to have the will and you have to have the patience because it's not just going to happen overnight, you know, at least about three years in the making to bring this to fruition where it has definitely become and been shaped into a legal document. And then you have to fight to pass it through and to have it supported by the policymakers. One of the unforeseen obstacles was what is happening right now. The Albert Kirky Bernalillo 
Airboard, just an amazing group over the years. They can have say-so on anything that looks at pollution in the, in the South Valley, Bernalillo County, and again with the city of Albuquerque. They agreed to review the regulation. And I think the closer the regulation came to fruition, really taking a stand and representing the community views and being pushed in front of industry, industry got threatened. They got really, really threatened and said, this can't go, this can't happen. Albuquerque City Council, Dan Lewis leading the charge, presented to Bill where he was recommending that the Air Board be dissolved, right? We don't want it. Well, because he got really intimidated in terms of he couldn't control it. They're an independent body with representatives from the city and the county posed this his own bills that would put a moratorium on the air board, take away their effectiveness, dissolve all the volunteer members because everyone's about they're not paid, they're volunteer members. I guess city councilor would appoint an advisor. So and by doing that, he also wanted to professionalize the air board. I want scientists on there, I want a medical doctor, I want this. Well, one of the things with that argument to me was looking at the perception that women are not scientists, the perception that women are not professionals. Um, as professional women, we can't push policy like that. We can't create policy because we don't know enough. It was very condescending, very patronizing. Yeah, he wants people who will do as he says versus really speaking to the integrity, the authenticity of a regulation that protects a community. This is public health. Esta es nuestra salud pública que la comunidad, la comunidad hizo para protegerse de la industria. You know, it is climate change. It's climate change because things are changing more and more. The intensive heat over the summer, the, all of that also affects how long Toxins stay in the air or don't stay in the air, how the wind can come and push them. So we're very much players and affected by climate change. You can't just say oh, it's happening on the other side of the world. It's right here. And so todos nos enfermamos de eso. Pero sabes que si no está en tu comunidad, eh, I'm not going to worry about it. That was whole, you know, Dan Lewis. It's like, the Air Board has too much power as an independent body. I'm going to come in, propose my own bills so that we can stop it. And it's got to stop right now. And therefore, they can't make, they have to stop all these public hearings where they're hearing testimony from community members. The commentary is open to anybody. Now, what I've observed watching it all, oh, it's like at least about 80%, 85% women. And the majority so far has been very much in favor of the regulation. Then um, city council, they um, supported them with some amendments, the nine members, 12 members of city council. Well, what happened during one a month, the mayor Keller vetoed it. He vetoed his veto. He, he vetoed Dan Lewis's bills because they had passed. And he says, no, we're not going to dissolve and get rid of the um, air board. We're not. We're going to let this, you know, take its course. Pues, 
they overrode the mayor's veto. There was like um, three, two, only two who stayed in support of Mountain View and the regulation not to change it. And meaning we're not gonna absolve, we, are not, we should not get rid of the air board. Um, the others voted in favor supporting Dan Lewis. So they overrode the mayor's veto. It was the second night of the hearing. Dan Lewis walks in, the city councilor. Uh, he walked in with a total sense of entitlement and abuse of power. This meeting is illegal. You must cease and desist. You have been voted out of existence. Erasure. We erased you and said you don't exist. So therefore, you are not proceeding in a legal manner. It was horrendous. I was shocked. I was really just like shocked, not so much by the behavior, but that he would have the audacity to walk in by supporting his bill um, to get rid of the air board. I think they really, his ego was unstoppable. When the hearing officer and the board decided to continue, the lawyer for the air board took a stand and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Lewis, but we do not have to stop. We have five days from the day that you said cease and desist until the ruling comes into effect. When does that ruling happen, um, take effect? Immediately when they made the decision or five days? And um, he, Lewis still held to the fact that it stops now, whereas the board attorneys were saying no. It doesn't stop now. So I met Kido, you could feel the tension in the room. All you had to do was read the um, editorial opinions in the journal. And it would show, it just kind of showed you this whole narrative that he was spinning out. I think one of the most inspiring elements of all of this is the youth. We've had youth go and testify and speak um, from, from different agencies and organizations because of movement, no puede ser un movimiento completo sin los jóvenes. Um, to use the term of, that Mexicanos use for seniors, nosotros somos de la tercera edad, you know, like myself and much of the members. So to bring that fresh voice that you all represent Nothing, nothing, nothing like it. It just, it just motivates because, you know, your, the energy you bring, the spirit, the motivation, the, um, the unique vision, and lens remind us. It, it becomes kind of uh, reciprocal. It reminds us why we, who are elder, who are elders or seniors have to keep fighting and fighting and fighting. And then to hear this new voice, these are the folks that are gonna replace us, you know, as they're coming and, and being, talk about, you know, generation justice. That's a perfect, beautiful word because that's it. Como pasamos the baton of justice. So this whole policy that we're trying to push forward regulation um, is just that, it's a statement about us and that we find ourselves sort of under attack, under assault by industry. It's nothing that is gonna erase industry. We're just against polluting industry and the fact that they need to take greater, and that's what this regulation is about, taking greater accountability 
on what it is that's coming out of your smokestack, on what it is that you're putting in the ground. Greater accountability in all of that versus assuming you have carte blanche to just come in and this is a free dumping ground. So in Las Voces, bienvenido to this conference and in the hearings, my heart just beats so fast and so proud when I hear the beauty of the, the positions and the definitions of a whole younger generation on why it is that we need to do this. It's, it's not an issue of them not getting it. They, they get it and they carry it and they move forward, you know, um, and that's the way that it should be. We all get it in a different way, but we are all needed. All this activity around the regulation to remind us de la conciencia, la concentración, de que importante es ser involucrados en nuestras comunidades. Our communities are our place of, you know, a spiritual center. It's where we feel safe. It's where we can go and, and, and really be ourselves. And then at the same time, there, our communities are getting killed because of all the toxins, all the pollution. And I want my baby girl to, to grow up healthy. How can I guarantee that? Tenemos sin duda que trabajar juntos en esta lucha. La lucha no es de una persona, no es para una persona, para una familia, es para todos. So, para sentir cómo es que podemos pedir en medio de estos tiempos donde la tienen la gente trabajando tanto, tanto, que no tengo tiempo de... Tengo que hacer el dinero para mi familia and so forth. So while understanding the economic context, if we don't fight for what little we have now, what is the generational wealth we're going to leave our children? And if you look at it in a macro level, in a much larger universal scope, well, look what we have done with you know climate injustice. People are losing their identities, their homes, their land, everything. It's going to come down to hit all of us. That health, environment, and equity intervention, the H-E-E-I, is calling for just that equity in holding industry accountable. If they're bringing in business, then they also, the permitting process needs to look at, and they need to ensure the um, how they're going to control certain contaminations uh, in ambient toxic environment. Magda, thank you so much for the update, uh, for talking about the regulation, but also updating us on what has happened with this city legislation. And you said something that's very important. We have to work together. Unidos somos más fuertes, everyone. Yeah intergenerational, todas las razas, todas las edades, jóvenes, adultos, personas de la tercera edad, working together for the same goal. And I think it's interesting that you started, when you started talking about Mountain View and the generational wealth that everybody, most people own their homes there and it's like something generational. And now you're, you're posting the question, what is the generational wealth that we're leaving? The best thing that we could do is leave a, a place where people can breathe and, and be in peace and sí. be healthy. Exactamente. Yep. Beautifully stated. Exactly that. Yeah. 
So Magda, tell us what are the next steps that are needed? What can be done at this time? Um, we have to make people consciousness and being aware of what is actually going on. As part of that concesitación, que entiendan, that people understand and can deconstruct this regulation in their own terms. So we have to provide like scenario one to aunque sea con historia, how do we deconstruct it so that people can understand it on their own terms, in their own way of being and seeing things, creating a letter of support, even just sending, you know, una carta to city council, to the mayor, um, and CCing us so that we know that they're on board, a fist of intent, a fist of passion, a fist of focus, que representa la lucha, la lucha. We can't walk away from this. And that's what they always figure we do. ¿Cómo podemos educar, preparar, hacer nuestros hijos consciente de esta lucha tan grande? You know, it, concesitación is a social movement of critical thought. It has to be. Esta comunidad, mi gente, la lucha que tenemos, es lo que para mí es mi altar sagrada. Muchas gracias, Magda. Thank you so much, Magda, for all the work that you've done throughout the years for dedicating your life to the betterment of our communities. Es un placer y un honor que estemos en este momento, en este lugar, al mismo tiempo, and that I get to learn from you and, and continue working together because we need you and united, we are stronger. Yes. Thank you so much for the, for the background and the updates. Gracias, gracias a ustedes and for all the work that you do. And I'm realizing part of that critical thought and critical consciousness, what an actual threat we represent when we act together, when we move together. Gracias, gracias a todas ustedes. Thank um, you so much, Magda. For Generation Justice, I'm Barbara Ramirez. Thank you, Dr. Avila, for your passion and participation in environmental justice. I'm comforted to know that our beautiful New Mexican environment is being advocated for. I appreciate all your hard work and the information you shared. Thank you, Dr. Magda Avila, for your work in this fight for environmental justice and for your mission to protect New Mexico's communities. Here is the song Brown-Eyed Children of the Sun by Daniel Valdez, which was chosen by our guest, Dr. Magda Avila. And what will you be giving to your brown-eyed children of the Did you know that Americans owe 1.7 trillion in student loan debt? That statistic comes from the Student Borrower Protection Center, 
a nonprofit organization focused on eliminating the burden of student debt for millions of Americans. We are joined by Amy Zulata, who is the Outreach and Advocacy Manager at the Student Borrower Protection Center, to share with us about the student debt crisis, how the center works to alleviate student debt, and how you can become involved if you are a student. Now, my co-host Elijah Cage speaks with Amy Zulata. We hope you enjoy. This is Elijah Cage with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Amy Zulata. Outreach and Advocacy Manager at the Student Borrower Protection Center. Amy, welcome to Generation Justice. Can you please tell us more about yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm Amy, I'm the Outreach and Advocacy Manager at the Student Borrower Protection Center. And then just, I guess, like a little bit about me in, in general. Um, prior to this, I was working for a labor union um, as a researcher in New York City that represents a lot of like commercial cleaners and folks like that, you know, really got my career started in the immigrant rights space. So I've kind of bounced around a bit in different like movement spaces. Um, and it's been a really exciting time to be working on student debt stuff. So it's amazing to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here today and talking with us, discussing and sharing about who you are and what you do. You know, the I believe the work you do is important. So thank you. Can you share the mission of the Student Borrower Protection Center. We're a national nonprofit policy organization focused solely on alleviating the burden of student debt in the country. And we do this through a mixture of advocacy, um, policymaking, and litigation to rein in industry abuses, protect borrowers' rights, and advance economic opportunity for the, the next generation of students. Um, we work at both the federal and state levels, um, and so doing some federal advocacy as well as some state legislative work, in addition to many other things that come down in re related to student debt. Um, I, in particular, work on a lot of our national partnership work and some of our state coalition building. I handle a lot of our education, so like a lot of our webinars for borrowers, um, because while we do believe in, you know, a debt-free future where folks can go to college without having to take on, you know, the burden of debt, um, there's still a lot that folks could know today that like might help their situations. And so um, we're committed to, you know, getting the right information out there. You know, we know that there's often not trusted sources. And so, um, you know, we hope to be one of those sources for folks. Um, and, you know, emphasis on protecting borrowers, making sure that folks um, are, are utilizing their rights um, as borrowers um, while we work for a debt-free future. And now, can you share the background about the student debt crisis? Yeah, absolutely. So the student debt crisis, I'm sure it's been, you know, all over the news lately, but it affects about 45 million people across the United States. And they're the total, you know, student debt um, that's held at the federal government level is about $1.7 trillion. Um, and that doesn't include private debt. But when we're talking about the student debt crisis, we're mostly talking about the federal student debt. So that's about 92% of the debt out there. Most people, you know, you, you file a FAFSA, you take out loans with the, the Department of Education through the federal government. And so that is the majority of the debt that is like in the country at the moment. We know that like private student debt is also a growing market. And so, and but there's a lot less known about that debt. We don't know exactly who holds that debt, how much debt is held. Um, and so some of the work that we're doing in different states is to figure out how much, you know, what does that debt look like? Who owns that debt? You know, how, how much are folks taking out for that debt? We don't even know. To get back to the federal student debt, really, I believe the average student loan debt per person is around $36,000 or so. That's, you know, a national average. 
And that has grown over the past few years. So not only are more folks taking on debt, but they're taking on a higher debt burden to like meet their educational needs, right? You know, another growing area for for student debtors is a lot of people associate it with like a a young people's problem, Um, but there actually is a growing demographic of older borrowers because not only do they have student debt for themselves that they took out um, years ago, they also are taking on more debt for their children. And so they're, you know, they have this like double burden of having to account for um, the gaps in, in one's education and financing it. We talk about it often as a civil rights crisis. You know, we know that black and brown students take out more student debt because they have less generational wealth due to inequities in the way that our education works and the way that everything works, right? And so um, we know that they take out a higher debt burden. And not only that, but when they graduate, you know, they have a harder time paying off that debt. We have uh, numbers on, you know, folks who are able to pay back their debt. And so essentially, There are great racial disparities here. So 20 years after starting college, a typical black borrower still owes 95% of the original student debt balance that they had, while typical white borrowers, like their white counterparts, have paid down almost 95% of the original balance. And that's 20 years after graduation. Often higher rates of default, you know, among folks of color. But when you look at it by zip code um, and by like institution, students of color are always taking out more debt and, and, and having a harder time paying it back because of just the inequities that are in our society generally. Um, Another phenomenon that really like shocks people, I think, is that 40% of the people that hold student debt never complete their degree. You then have all this debt and you don't have a degree that would help you maybe get the job that would help you pay for the the loan in the first place. And so um, it's really putting people in, in a lurch this is like the baseline information, right? But on top of all this, you know, we know that there there has been so much service or mismanagement. So those companies that are kind of tasked with like managing your student loans after you graduate, we know that they've been like steering people into forbearances and deferments, you know, messing up people's like loan histories, all sorts of wild stories. And so um, that is another phenomenon that is tied to this, that like, there's like this common mantra of like, well, you took out the debt, pay it back. You know, most folks do want to pay it back, but it's like an impossible task to pay it back. The numbers just never add up. And not only that, then you have this problem of service or mismanagement where these companies are really looking to make money off of you and not, you know, not even give you a chance, right? (laughs) Most people think of student debt as loans that you take out for college um, that are held either directly by the federal government or held by, you know, private lender, but maybe insured by the federal government. So that's like kind of what people think of, right? But there is this other portion of what we call shadow student debt. And something that falls into that is something um, that is institutional debt. And so that's debt that's directly held by an institution. So when maybe you um, maybe you have like parking fees or library fees that add up that is held by like uh, the University of New Mexico or whatever university you go to, or maybe you withdraw from a class after the date that you were supposed to, um, and now you're on the hook for all of that money, you know, life happens to people. <laughs> and that's just the reality, right? Like maybe you weren't able to finish your semester. Your institution is holding several thousand dollars and you're not able to re-enroll. You're not able to maybe get your transcript. Um, so all sorts of problems associated with this like shadow student debt piece that is institutional debt, like debt held by institutions. And so that's another kind of area that we've been working on too, to ban transcript withholding, ban diploma withholding by institutions if folks have debt held at those institutions. And I'm speaking on all this information on student debt crisis. Can you share some tools current students can use to alleviate student debt? It's not top of mind, right, when you're a student because you just kind of sign the paperwork. And I know it wasn't top of mind for me, right? The paperwork signed, you're already in school, you're not going to worry about it until you graduate. I think some things to keep in mind 
first like knowing <laughs> um, it's like knowledge is power in some ways. And so, you know, going to studentaid.gov and logging into your account and just seeing like how much money you owe and what type of loans they are. Um, if you're in school right now, likely, you know, you probably had something called a direct loan, which is like the main loan type. Um, and it has been the main loan type since like 2010. And so, you know, figuring out what type of loans you have, how much you have, maybe who your servicer is, when your first payment will be due, things like that to kind of prepare for, for that moment when you do have to repay. But also thinking about other things that might be useful to you. There's a program called Public Service Loan Forgiveness. And essentially that's a program where if you work in um, a nonprofit or a government for 10 years, and make payments on your loans during that time, you can get your debt canceled through that program. This is an existing program, right? Um, and so maybe thinking about like, does that make sense for me? <laughs> you know, would I wanna take the steps to, to kind of do that? And it does, the 10 years doesn't have to be consecutive. And so like, even if you got a job out of college and you worked in the public service for a couple of years, you know, documenting that time so that it's on record, um, because like, as I mentioned, so much service service management, right? And so, a lot of the problems with these programs that have existed and were supposed to work for people weren't working for people because of um, the servicers. And so really staying on top of it and making sure that you're getting, you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's to make sure your paperwork's in. That baseline general knowledge. So like when you leave school, you have a, essentially a six month grace period before you have to start paying, repaying your student loans. So during that time, you know, you, you could look into income driven repayment plans. Those are plans that are based on your income. They're often more affordable or the most affordable option for folks, um, especially like right out of school, because maybe, you know, you're, you're not making a million dollars a year unless, you know, you got really lucky. I don't know. You know, getting in these income driven repayment plans um, is often more affordable. And if you don't enroll in that, then you're automatically put in something called the standard plan. And what the standard plan does is it has you paying off the whole loan in 10 years. And so if you owe like a $20,000 loan, you know, like you'd pay that entire amount over 10 years. Um, with these income-driven repayment plans, it's a lower monthly payment. Um, some of them offer like a shorter timeline to getting your debt canceled. Um, and so just like kind of starting to think about these things um, even before you like graduate is, is, um, is probably like gonna help you in the long run to, to kind of plan for your future. Thank you so much. Now, Ms. Zuada, earlier you had mentioned that this crisis isn't just something students should be worried about, right? This is something other folks should be worried about as it affects others as well. And for those curious, how can the community become involved in this work of making this crisis known? Yeah, I think that's a great question. That's the million dollar question, right? Um, I think making sure folks have information from trusted sources is really important. So making sure you're getting your information from studentaid.gov, that's the federal student aids um, website. Um, it's really the clearinghouse for all of your information around federal student debt. In addition, we have a resource called cancelmystudentdebt.org um, that has a lot of how-to guides on how to like apply for public service loan forgiveness, you know, get it, get it on an IDR plan, maybe get out of default. Default happens when you don't make a payment for nine months. Um, and it really, you know, affects your credit. It affects your ability to get a car, get a house, all these things, making sure that you're sharing trusted information with folks. Um, but in addition, there's, there's a ton going on. Um, if you experience any issues, uh, we really encourage people to file complaints. You know, you can file complaints with the ombudsperson at the federal student aid um, within the Department of Education. You can file it with um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
And then some states have ombudspersons at the state level. We are working to try to create one in New Mexico right now that doesn't currently exist yet, but we're working on it along with some of our partners. You know, complaints are really important in shaping the policy of the future. Often lawmakers will go to those databases and see what the common issues were and, and figure out how to fix them. But also the more um, uh, like the more common problems that an agency receives on a given problem, the more likely they are to respond to that problem. On this other front of like advocacy, right? There's 45 million people in student debt. So it's it's an issue affecting everyone. And if you don't currently have student debt, I'm sure you know someone who does, or I'm sure you have a family member who's struggling with it. Really using your voice to tell your story and share your story and um, you know, let folks know, like, I didn't make any mistakes. I did everything right. I was told that my education would lead me to better opportunities. And and here I am saddled with debt. And like maybe you don't regret your education, but like this this isn't working. Like it, there's something about this that isn't working. Um, and so sharing your story can be really powerful. And then if there are any organizations or if folks are involved in any organizations that might want to, to join forces, you know, um, and either at the federal level to advocate for like more regulatory changes that are like more in the weeds on different programs. Um, and then also at the state level, you know, we'd love help in trying to get this, we call it a borrower bill of rights passed in New Mexico. We're hoping to run it um, this upcoming year as well and um, hoping to really get it on the agenda. So yeah, those are just some ways I think. And for those that want to know more, where can people go to learn more about the Student Borrower Protection Center? So we have um, our main website is protectborrowers.org. That has all of our all of our reports that we publish, any like blogs that we publish, all of the work that we're doing. Um, and then that other website I mentioned, cancelmystudentdebt.org, is a website that we put together with some of our other partners to really get the word out there about different things. And it's more borrower focused. So if you need help with something, that's a good place to go. Um, and we also run semi-regular webinars. And so other available at our YouTube page and some of them are available at cancelmystudentdebt.org as well. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Zulata. We are coming to an end, but before we end, I would like to ask you, is there anything else that you would like to add? I think if you're having any issues, please get help. But then second, I'm sure it's been on folks' radar, but President Biden announced student debt cancellation last year in August that, you know, up to $20,000 in student debt cancellation for anybody who used a Pell Grant to pay for their education at any point, and then $10,000 for all other federal borrowers. This went through a lengthy court process and was heard before the Supreme Court in February. And then the Supreme Court came down with a decision not in our favor, you know, saying that it was not possible under the HEROES Act. And so in response to that, the president decided to kind of try to go through the Higher Education Act, which is just a different authority to try to get student debt canceled for folks. Um, and that has led to this process called negotiated rulemaking which just happened this fall. And so there was a session in October, there was a session in November, and then there was the final session. Um, and what, what happens during this process is essentially like a committee of folks comes together um, and talks about student debt, talks about the issues, figures out what they can do about this. This, this process isn't over. We're kind of waiting on the Department of Education to decide whether or not there's gonna be another session because the negotiators at the table really felt that uh, there were some questions left unanswered. This conversation has shifted completely in the past five years, right? Five years ago, no one was talking about student debt cancellation in a really serious, meaningful way. And um, it's the power of everyone, of those 45 million people that has really gotten us to this place where our leaders are like considering it, are like working on it, are, are understanding that we have leverage here. You know, you, you all have power as debtors. <laughs> like, please share your story. Please keep urging 
folks to, to really um, consider student debt cancellation and, and make it big and make it real because it's going to not only affect us, but like hopefully everyone who comes after us, right? Thank you so much today for your messages and for your information that you shared. You know, I'm a first generation student, so I have, I have very specified, you know, people where I could go and ask them about information such as student debt, you know, loans, Pell Grants, all that sorts of stuff. I probably learned a, a lot of information today than I have in a while about the crisis, you know, student debt crisis, because it's not something that's mentioned every day, especially when going to college, you know, who's going to tell you you're about to be in debt <laughs> for probably most of your life, you know, who's going to tell you that? So I thank you today. And the work that you're doing is very important work. And hopefully more people do get involved to where this crisis goes down. I thank you. For Generation Justice, I'm Eliza Cage. Thank you, Amy, for joining us and sharing about the current student debt crisis. I had not realized the extent and complexities of the crisis and am thankful for the opportunity to learn so much more about it. And thank you for your support for those struggling with debt. Thank you again, Ms. Lauda, for informing us about the student debt crisis and for sharing some resources that may benefit those in need. Especially as a student, this crisis is something to be aware of. Before we end our show, we'd like to remind you of a few important safety measures to keep you safe as you enter the new year. That's right. Remember that you are still susceptible to contracting and spreading viral illnesses. These viral illnesses include COVID-19, the flu, and RSV. So how can I protect myself and my loved ones from these viral illnesses? Well, one of the most effective ways to keep you and your loved ones safe is by getting vaccinated and staying up to date on all your immunizations. By doing so, you are protecting yourself and your loved ones. If you or someone you love is in need of a vaccination for any viral illness, you can visit vaccinenm.org and schedule your vaccination appointment today. Once again, that's vaccinenm.org. What if I've received all my immunizations already? What are other ways to keep myself and my community safe? Other effective ways of keeping you and the people you love safe is making sure that you are maintaining social distance and safety protocols are put into place. Try to limit large gatherings, ensure that the space you're in is well ventilated, and if you have access to an air purifier, that's even better. We also suggest that you continue to wear your KN95 mask over your mouth and nose to prevent the spread of virus particles to others. And once again, if you need to get vaccinated against any viral illnesses that are currently spreading, visit vaccinenm.org. That's vaccinenm.org to find a vaccination near you. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Magda Avila and Amy Zulata. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Roberta Rayev and interviewer Barbara Ramirez with production assistance from Sunandito Santana. And thank you to our interviewer and my co-host, Elijah Cage. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. 
Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow our playlist on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health, Infectious Disease Bureau through the Better Together Coalition, the McCune Foundation, as well as Media Justice, the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. I'm Ariana Cordova. And I'm Elijah Cage. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. <laughs>